Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 24 and 38 through 48, with an emphasis on verses 38 through 48. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of God. Good morning, everyone. Um, if you are new, if you are visiting here, um, we are glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. And uh, what we've been going through is a series on Jesus and his uh, most comprehensive teaching, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus comes to teach about what it means to be a Christian, Jesus is not coming just to talk about living with a moral compass. But when Jesus comes and he preaches this Sermon on the Mount, he comes with something far more radical. He's coming with something way more transformative. See, Jesus and his Sermon on the Mount, to be very clear, uh, it can't be reduced to just a, in an impressive setting of teachings because what Jesus is essentially teaching is that he is the very Son of God. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount is not just meant to be a rule of life, but rather an invitation to a whole new way of life. And it's in this new life, radically transformed by the gospel, Jesus teaches us today on how the gospel can transform one of the most important components of our lives. Specifically, today he's talking about our relationships. And as we kind of go through this passage, I want us to have this uh, thought in our back pocket. Think about all of our relationships today. Think about our family, our friends, coworkers, significant other. And think about how often they break or are constantly breaking. And really consider what hope the gospel has to offer in this part of our lives. The main point is this. If you truly believe what Jesus has done for you on the cross because of an unconditional love, then this truth should always challenge you in how you are to love others. So I have three points for us this morning as we dive into today's text. First, he tells us the problem of the old way. Secondly, the power of a new way. And finally, perfection through the only way. I'm not going to lie, it took a really long time to make that sound cool. And then... I don't know if it really worked, but we'll dive into our first point. 
Jesus, he's beginning this passage with the problem of the old, uh, old way, and we find this in verse 38. In verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, whenever Jesus says, you have heard, which you see, you see in verse 38, you also see this in verse 43, and also throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, whenever Jesus says, you have heard, he's essentially saying that there's actually a problem with what you have heard, and it's stemming not from the law in itself, but a rather how you have been using the law. So when I say that there's a problem of the old way, I'm not talking about the law in itself, right? The law is perfect. It was good. It's what we see throughout Scripture from the old to the new, that it is covenantly in oneness. That's what Scripture is, and it is inspired by the very Word of God. But when I say that the problem of the old way is not the law in itself, rather the problem is how we use that law for our own selfishness. Now, I want us to unpack verse 38 for just a bit, because if you look at verse 38, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, this is one of those verses that, you know, a lot of skeptics right now would kind of say and respond in reading that verse. You know, how could God create such a law of injustice and violence? But when you put eye for eye, tooth for tooth uh, in this proper context, this law actually reflects a God of justice, love, and mercy. Why? See, this law is called the law of retaliation. And the law of retaliation in ancient times was meant to protect the poor. It was meant to protect the oppressed from the kings of the time that had way too much power. Essentially, that meant the king can do whatever he wanted to do in terms of punishment, violence against anyone that was underprivileged. See, in the ancient days, violence and vengeance was limitless. The law of violence had no boundaries. If you were poor, you were vulnerable to any amount of wrath. So God, he creates the law of retaliation to prevent against the rulers to abuse their power and their abuse. So the whole purpose of the law was actually to take the punishment out of the realm of private vengeance. So the question is, why does Jesus use this law to begin this passage? Let's read verse 38 with 39. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. See, the purpose of this law was to protect, to honor, and to uphold society. But in our own self-fill-in-the-blank, ambition, desire, glory, we took that purpose and instead we constantly now exploit this honor and go against the people that God has placed within our lives. Jesus' main point is this, that we replaced the heart of the law with the actual law in itself. I'll say that again, that we replaced the heart of the law with the actual law itself. And Jesus here is saying, don't embrace the methods of revenge in your personal relationships, because if you do, it will create discord. If you do, your personal relationships right now will be filled with hardened hearts, with mistrust, and essentially broken relationships. Let's consider this for just a bit. Think about all the brokenness, all the anger, all the mistrust in your relationships today. Because in some shape or form, I would argue, 
is the letter of the law that resides in our hearts rather than the spirit of law of the law that has called us to love one another as we have been called to. Now, I'm not denying that it's difficult. Of course it's difficult. If there's one thing you know about any relationship, that relationships are probably the most difficult things you will deal with. Yes, there are going to be arguments. Yes, there's bound to be discord. Yes, there will be injustices. But what we see in verse 38 and 39, to resist, not resist an evil person, Jesus is saying that I'm not going to seek revenge. I'm not going to respond in the way that I actually think you deserve, even though I really, really, really want to. And I will hold back. Because it just causes discord. It causes more brokenness. When someone begins to privately gossip and the other responds in public slandering, tell me how that response is Christ-like. When someone steals money from you and the other responds in destroying your property, tell me how reconciliation is actually going to happen. When someone commits adultery and the other responds in pornography, tell me how that encourages any form of union. Our pride, our self-righteousness, our own personal agendas, it always leads to responding with an eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth disposition. And it's contradictory not only to the commands of God, but God himself. And it will break you, and it will break the people that surround you. It was Gandhi that once said this, an eye for an eye only ends up making the whole world blind. See, the old way is flawed because it's stemming from misguided eyes that always seeks a personal justice. But if you look at society at large, anyone can tell you that the personal use of this law is broken. It's broken. If you live by this law, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, in any form, any type of your relationships, there is no shot. There is no chance. There is no forgiveness. There is no grace. There is no hope. There is no mercy. And Jesus saying, how you interpreted this law and how you misused my law, that is an old way. And I've come here to offer and deliver a new way, which is far more powerful than what you once thought. Look at verse 39 with me as we dive into our second point. Verse 39, he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. I'm going to unpack this just for a bit. See, to slap another's cheek was actually considered a very serious insult. Uh, In ancient times, this was considered to be a high dishonor. It's to the point where someone could receive a very harsh penalty, even to the point of physical punishment. And here, Jesus is essentially saying that if someone dishonors you, when someone slaps you in the face, betrays you, sins against you, a serious as the offense may be, don't retaliate of the same anger. Don't respond in the same way. Don't seek uh, vengeance in a personal way that honors nobody. If somebody slaps you with the highest dishonor, your response is to have the humility to let go of an opportunity to respond in a similar fashion. 
And Jesus now is explaining the power of a brand new way of loving others, and we find this in verse 42. Now, when we look at verse 40 through 42, as he's kind of breaking down the power of the new way, he actually gives us three specific examples. In each situation, Jesus is commanding his disciples to go beyond the expected response. The point of these three illustrations is to show that the disciples don't, don't be part of furthering this cycle of evil in a broken world. So let's break these three down real quick. Look at verse 40. Jesus says, And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. What's Jesus saying? Well, the coat was a tunic. It was an outer garment. And in the ancient times, even the poorest of poors had a right to a tunic. If someone had a claim on all of your possessions, the one thing you weren't allowed to take was his outer garment. And what Jesus is saying is that even if there's someone that's hurting you, not only should you give up your shirt, but give up your coat. What does that mean? He's saying, I want you to give up your rights. In verse 41, Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now what's happening here? The idea of going an extra mile is interesting because the Romans during that time, the Roman soldiers um, because they had this soldier status, what could happen was they could force Jews into walking and carrying their stuff. I mean, you could be having dinner with your family, you could be hanging out with your friends, but if a Roman soldier knocked on your door and said, I want you to carry my stuff for me, it was, it was essentially saying that the rule, that the law was that they had to go. It's essentially like a form of oppression, right? But Jesus is saying this in light of that extra mile. Swallow your pride, swallow your dignity, swallow your anger, swallow your self-righteousness, and consider going the extra mile. Now, I just want to say this on a side note. What Jesus is not saying is to be submissive to any type of abusive force, and I want to be very clear on that. Jesus is not saying to just be a doormat if, if someone is being domineering. That's not the case. But what Jesus is trying to say in this context is that in light of an opportunity to hear someone, if they come in repentance for the sake of reconciliation, will you consider going an extra mile to hear? Verse 42, Jesus says, Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. What's Jesus saying here in this third illustration? Jesus is saying, don't calculate too much if someone is seeking reconciliation. If someone asks, don't turn away. Simple as that. See, in place of the defense of legal rights, Jesus is calling you and I to generosity. In place of concern for yourself, he's saying, set the concern for the other person. That's the new way. Is a new radical way of loving others. It's contrary to self-justice uh, and self-justification. But in selflessness, because of what Christ has done for us, we respond in a way that He has called us to. So what we do, what we do see, is that there are two practical ways of doing so. Look at verse forty-three. 
First, loving your enemies. Look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, it's interesting, right? Because when you look at this verse, it's actually stemming from Leviticus 19, verse 18. But when you read verse 19 through 18, this passage never says, hate your enemy, right? It's going back to this whole idea of you have heard that you have somewhere down the line kind of uh, misrepresented that verse. So in that original verse, there's nothing about hating your enemy. But why does Jesus say this? Because for somewhere down the line, we got our wires crossed, and uh, loving our neighbors slowly turned into hating your enemy. See, when we look at Luke chapter 10, verse 25, we, talk, we hear the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it shows that Jesus does not accept this, accept this restrictive word of neighbor. But rather, he says, pray for the ones that persecute you as a demonstration for Jesus' love. That you need to pray for the ones that who persecute you. That you need to love the ones that dishonor you. You need to care for the ones that insult you. And that's what it simply means to follow Jesus. So practically, what that means for us right now, in terms of loving your enemies, is Stop holding grudges. Come in repentance. And if there is an opportunity, seek reconciliation. But that will never happen if we don't do the hard work of forgiveness. And I think on a very practical point, who is your enemy? I would argue it's the one that you don't define as neighbor. Are you, are you loving your enemies? just as you're loving your neighbors? Are you willing to withhold the grudge? Are you willing to find yourself in repentance? Are you willing to see yourself as someone that's a little bit less? Are you willing to come, your, come with a disposition of humility to say and move forward and love as Christ has called to love you? Secondly, what do we see as a practical point in terms of the new way? Fighting in grownness. Look at verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? See, I think the second practical point of the new way is to fight in grownness. What do I mean by that? You know, the danger of, of many churches today is that we often become ingrown. We settle because we feel like we're established. We ride the thrills of thriving in our ministry, and somewhere down the line it becomes this selfish entitlement of becoming content with our ingrownness, and now we can be comfortable because we felt like we hit a in ministry mark but i'm telling y'all right now when that happens we have lost the mission we settle with what tax collectors do see john miller he says it this way here here it is words the church aggressively and joyfully seeks out the unchurched 
laboring to welcome them into the church as the members of the body of Christ. Its leaders self-consciously reject a Christian clubhouse atmosphere and devote themselves to developing in the congregation as an open face to the community and the world beyond. Simply to say is that we have to fight in grownness. There's a reason why that, uh, you know, non-believers, when they step into the room, how many times, oftentimes, do you never see them again? Because in some shape or form, we have to look at ourselves and we have to simply ask, in what ways, in what shapes or forms are we are functioning like a Christian clubhouse rather than a city of light? See, to apply this is a, is a reflection that you truly believe that there's a power in the way of being more intentional, loving others through repentance and reconciliation. And yes, this is a difficult task. But if you believe that there's a new way and that there is a power in the new way, well, where does that power come from? It leads us to our third point, that perfection that we find in the only way. Verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the Greek word for perfect here is teleos, and we would actually see this later in Matthew chapter 19, verse 21. In Matthew chapter 19, what do you see? We see a rich man asking Jesus, how do I gain eternal life? And how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and then you will have treasures in heaven, and then come follow me. In other words, for the rich man to be perfect, he had to give up. And in the same way, for us to be perfect, we have to give up not only riches, but we have to give up our rights. So when Jesus says to be perfect, Jesus is essentially saying in the light of relationships, in light of loving others, that you got to be countercultural in how you are loving others, that you are be willing to sacrifice your rights, that you're going to hold no restrictions to the ones that do bad, and you're going to be more selfless. Now, what I love about this passage and when we see Jesus calling us to be perfect is that Jesus reminds us, yes, seek perfection, but what do we see in verse 38? It's because we know that there is someone that is far perfect. Be perfect for you have someone in you that is perfect. In other words, that calling to st is stemming from an, an identity, meaning our motivation is not for the sake of just being perfect, but we respond in seeking perfection in our love for others because someone already has perfectly loved us. In other words, the only way you can end this cycle of pain and brokenness in relationships it's if you know that there is someone that fully gave up one's rights to end a cycle of pain and brokenness within your life. If you're in this room right now, and now you're feeling motivated to love others in a greater way because you know morally it's the right thing to do, I'm telling you right now that that is not enough motivation. You'll get tired. You'll be weakened. You'll be discouraged. See, the new way of loving others, it only comes from knowing one that is perfect 
And the one that is perfect, he absorbed all of our imperfections. That the one that is perfect, he redeems all of our brokenness. That the one that is perfect, he brings hope in your darkness. That because he is perfect, he tells you in perfection that he is the truth in the midst of Satan's lies and your own self-deception. And what Jesus tells us is that there is and that he loved you perfectly. How do we know this? In Matthew chapter 26, we find Jesus in the garden and we see Jesus Christ in the garden. And what does he do? He does verse 38 and 39. He turns his cheek. He, he turns his cheek on our behalf. But when he turns his cheek, he turns his cheek to a Judas kiss. He experiences the kiss of betrayal. He now will suffer the ultimate injustice. By Jesus turning his cheek, the ultimate betrayal, the ultimate shame, we see that as it leads to the cross, but there is a new life in the cross. As he has risen, there is ultimate glory. Because of Jesus turning his cheek to an ultimate betrayal, we can now know, we can live in light of this truth. We can live in light of this new way. That because when we turn our cheek to others, meaning we're going to give up our rights, we also know that there is strength for today, that there is hope for tomorrow because you and I will no longer experience a kiss of betrayal, but there will be one latter day in the high heavens that there will be waiting a kiss of grace. And if you believe in this truth, that you can give up your outer tunic. You can give up your coat, meaning you can give up your rights because Christ fully removed his outer tunic on the cross where he was naked and exposed on the cross. You can walk with others even though you don't want to because we know that Christ walked a long road carrying the cross. And yes, you and I, we can give generously because Jesus gave up more than any resource that we can ever imagine. But he himself gave up himself so that we could receive the benefits of salvation. And when we believe in Christ as his new way and the only way, it should humble us. It should humble us in a way where we're responding to turn the other cheek, to be humble, to be broken because Jesus did that for us. And at the same time, because we're in him, there is no pain that we can't take because we're actually finding our strength in him. That there will be injustices. I mean, you and I, we have experienced it. But what I love about the gospel is that it also empowers you to deal with it, to go through it, and to find hope in it, and to be renewed by it. Only through the gospel can you find that. I'm telling you all right now, only through the gospel can you find that. You can suffer injustice. You can give up your rights to retaliate because you don't need it for you have the fullness of God's love. You know, some may not know, 
you know, but in light of transparency, you know, you know, I, I've been, uh, it's been about five years um, since my uh, once marriage became dissolved. And, you know, people often ask me, Brian, um, you know, they want to know more about it. You know, I'm a very open person in some ways, right? And they ask me, you know, uh, what happened? You know, what caused the divorce? And I always respond in the very same way. And the answer as often is that there was a pattern of offenses. There was the most grievous of sins. And yes, they were uppercuts and haymakers to this covenant. That essentially there was an eye for eye, tooth for tooth approach towards one another. And it led to this slow dissolving of the marriage that because of this eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth approach in doing our relationships, and without repentance, without with bitterness, and the w- lack of willingness to forgive, that it led to this brokenness. And now, it's not the full story, and nor is the point of trying to figure out what the full story is, but hear me that your point is this, that only in Christ can you fully love that only in Christ I've come to realize that it's through him we come in this humble approach to fully loving others by giving up our rights to fully forgive and to pursue reconciliation. Because Christ loved his enemies, us, in humility, so that we could be forgiven, we now have a humility so powerful that will move us towards others. Will you close your eyes and bow your heads with me?